Hey everyone. Back in February, Autumn and I spent time in Belfast, Northern Ireland. We were invited there to facilitate speculative fiction workshops with a number of groups of people who had survived the conflict there. One of the people we spent the most time with in Belfast was Lawrence McEwen. Lawrence is an incredible artist and playwright who has spent much of his artistic life telling stories about the people behind what's um, often called the troubles or what we called the conflict. Um, in case you didn't know, the conflict in Northern Ireland dates back centuries. Uh, the most recent iteration began in the late 1960s as the Unionist or Loyalist wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. The Loyalists were mostly Protestant, and on the other side were the Irish Nationalist Republicans, who were mostly Catholic, like Lawrence. The Irish Nationalists wanted Northern Ireland to leave the UK and join a united Ireland. So it's this political and sectarian conflict um, that got dubbed the Troubles, um, and it lasted from the late 1960s to the late 1990s. It's this conflict which led Lawrence to join the Irish Republican Army, um, also known as the IRA, or, you know, the acronym. Uh, so he joined in 1973, yeah? So three years after that, in an act of IRA militancy, Lawrence uh, would fire his rifle at a police car. One officer was slightly injured in the attack, and Lawrence was sentenced to life in prison. So while inside the prison, he participated in a hunger strike that was aimed at restoring political prisoner status for those in prison like him who were there for, you know, offenses related to the conflict. And he also participated in several other protests, which we're about to hear about. And he was released in 1992 after a campaign which successfully argued how the IRA political prisoners were being incarcerated indefinitely while non-political offenders were set free much earlier. So we're leaving a ton of history out here. Um, there's so much to read if you want to go deeper, and we are going to include lots of links in our show notes. Um, but that's the main thing to know before playing this interview with Lawrence. I think the other thing we just want to say is Lawrence has a stunning, lovely um, Irish accent. And um, so this this is a this is an episode that we really recommend just listen to it. Like, don't try to listen to it and multitask and do other things if the Irish accent is going to be a new sound for your ears. Um, we really learned how to hear it and you can um, do the same if you just listen and drop in, let yourself actually hear what, what Lawrence is sharing. Um, so yeah, this is a, a deep dive into a really political moment of importance in our history, our shared history. Enjoy. I grew up in a very rural area, uh -huh. about 20 miles from here. Um, a very mixed area, religion-wise. And I think people often think of the conflict here in religious terms. Mm. Um, but for me, it's, it's never been. It's about politics. Uh -huh. But religion has been used, as colonialism and imperialism has used, difference anywhere in the world, whether it's religion, tribal difference, skin color, language, as a way to divide. So I grew up, and I say that because many other people wouldn't have had that same experience, able to grow up in very, very Catholic area, nationalist area. So it was a very idyllic uh, upbringing, in the sense of um, 
you know, being blissfully unaware of things. We lived in a house that had no electricity, no running water, uh, but that would have been the norm then. You know, she had outdoor toilets, you had a large tin bath that you bathed in once a week or whatever. You had um, lights and runoff paraffin, but you didn't think about those things at that time because basically everybody was the same. You mm -hmm. knew the person who had the phone, so you could go on <laughs> from there. Uh -huh. um, and really, I was, I was, I was life, uh, until about uh, 12 years of age, and then they were building a motorway, and it was going through our house, so we had to move. Oh, wow. And um, my grandmother lived about two miles down the road, so my father started to build the house there. And it's interesting how you're living through a moment, a historical moment, and not being aware of it because the civil rights movement was starting at that time oh. in 1968-69 and started by students here in uh, Belfast in terms of the long march that they did in uh, January 69 from Belfast to Derry and other people, trade unionists and Republicans and, and some liberal Protestants who were at that time campaigning for civil rights and basically their demands were one man one foot because at the time and it was one man rather than yeah. one person. Um, at that time, while, uh, while there was a voting system, it depended on property. So if you owned seven properties, you had seven votes, you owned 20 properties. If you didn't own any property, you didn't have a vote. Wow. So generally the Catholic community didn't own much property, um, so therefore they didn't get a vote. Or even in areas like Derry, where um, Catholics and nationalists would have been in the majority, uh, the whole council boundaries were gerrymandered, as the word is called, so there'd always be an inbuilt unionist majority, mm -hmm. even though it was in a city where uh, it was mainly uh, Catholic. Um, and Can one I of ask the other a quick question yeah. about that: Did the Catholic Church own property and have a vote? Yeah, well, yeah, the Catholic Church owned a lot of property. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure in terms of their footing and how it worked. Obviously, a priest would have it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they certainly, they certainly want a lot of property. Yeah. Um, and generally kept quiet about things, with, uh -huh. uh, with a few notable exceptions of, of people, um, but individuals. But one of the other demands on, on the civil rights was an end to discrimination in employment and housing. And at that time, if you were um, looking to build a house, you had to submit plans for the house and where you want to build it, and you submitted it to your local council. And that's generally where the discrimination then happened because the council was elected representatives. So in our case in Andron, elected representatives were largely unionist. Um, so my father, who was a fan driver, lorry driver, very quiet man, very inoffensive. I mean, my parents' generation kept their heads down mm -hmm. and their, their parents. And I think what happened was in the 60s, uh, for a whole number of reasons, um, I mean, even remember like the, the anti-Vietnam protests, the riots in Paris. Now, there's a general sort of global uprising. There certainly, yeah. uh, certainly there's an impact. But anyway, um, my father, um, yeah, had to leave the house because the motorway going to go through it. And he worked with this guy who's a Protestant guy, uh, Billy Burns. And he had recently built a house just a few miles away. Uh, so my father says, you give me the plans and he would photocopy them or do whatever with them and, and get them submitted and I would save him money from, from trying to buy an architect or river. And Billy just credit gave him, gave him the plans and my father submitted them and uh, the council rejected them. 
on something like 39 counts of why you couldn't build this house. And it's probably the only time my father ever took any sort of um, proactive uh, energy out of desperation and my uh, sister. We contacted the council to tell them that they had passed the exact same plans three years earlier because they were the same plans of Billy Burns' house, mm-hmm. which had been built. He was a Protestant guy. So how come there now was such an objection? Mm-hmm. And uh, of course they were embarrassed in it and they, um, they removed all the objections apart from like three minor things that they don't move a wall four inches or something and the house was built. Wow. I never really knew that at the time. It was only, only later. So you're living through a moment oh. that's happening to your own family, not knowing it. And then the other really intriguing thing was when we were building the house. I was just started secondary school and I would go home in the afternoon and um, sort of assist the plasters or the builders and, and and all these cars started to arrive. So I was about 13, um, 12 actually. Cars and minibuses started to arrive because in the same field where we were building our house there was a small hall which was owned by the ancient order Hibernians. There's oh. a which there's a big organisation in America the which Mm-hmm. generally very conservative and mm-hmm. healthy but uh-huh. anyway uh, they had this hall and these people were going into and um, we were going out later and I remember seeing these young people with long hair and what I now know was somebody wearing an Afghan coat but I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what it was at the time <laughs> but it seemed interesting and I remember thinking I'd love to be going in to see what it was and what it actually was was the civil rights marchers coming from Belfast and they had been stopped in Antrim by unionists out with pickaxe handles and everything and um, and they each to their credit facilitated them in cars and minibuses to come and stay overnight in, wow. the, in the hall as they were making their, their march to Derry the whole march to Derry wow. which was a family attack outside Derry and people were just beaten by police and unionists and um, you know the police were, were there with people who were masked and mm-hmm. so it's interesting you've grown up through that time um, and then we moved to we moved into our new house and we had electricity and then we had TV and um, it was those early years then I started to watch uh, a lot of the, the talks that would be on and I know that uh, I seen the photograph the other day of Bernadette Devlin who was this very young woman uh, but who really um, epitomised the struggle at that time mm-hmm. uh, was involved in the old riots in Derry the, where young people held off the police for three days. I mean young, like 12, 13, 14. They wow. got onto the top of Rossville Flats with petrol bombs and the police just couldn't come into the area, mm-hmm. which is why eventually the British Army was, was brought in. Huh. Um, so we started to listen to people who burned it. And um, I remember my father watching the TV and, and, and the bits have been really animated and excited, even though that never transferred into any political activity on the outside. But <laughs> what do you realise later? was that people like Bernadette were articulating what he experienced. Mm, great, um, what he was feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it was a yeah, real you know, shift in, in consciousness, I suppose, yeah. And then uh, I suppose I became more interested in that than some people who would have been a few years older than me in school were ended up uh, in prison. So again, it was coming closer to you. Mm. And... Um, I suppose that, but the big turning point for me was um, there had been a special paramilitary police force. Uh, well, they're all paramilitary police forces, but they had, apart from having the RUC, which was the, the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, mm-hmm. they also had another um, organisation called the B Specials, yeah. uh, which were basically part time uh, 
part-time police, um, heavily armed, uh, no rifles and all, all the rest of it, and basically it was a Protestant militia. Uh-huh. Um, then there was such an outcry about them because they'd killed people, they'd been involved in burning down streets in, in Belfast and such like that um, the British government um, sort of uh, rather stood down and all the rest of it and they started a new organisation called the Ulster Defence Regiment which basically in practice became the B-Specials uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and the Ulster Defence Regiment then was a regiment within the British Army it was the largest regiment actually um, hmm. predominantly Protestant but I'd end up with a lot of people, uh, I was about 15 then, and um, a lot of people that I would have known in Randleston in the town, Protestant guys who were playing football with, and suddenly were in this Ulster Defence Regiment and mm. were getting stopped by them. And I, I vividly remember uh, the first night getting stopped, I remember the guy, um, and asking me for my name and where I was coming from and where I was going to. And he was embarrassed because... He knew you. He knew you. Oh know. my God. But um, after the first time, you know, the embarrassment went, and it was just the, the aggression, and we'd have been stopped and held for several hours or taken to a police barracks for no reason. I mean, I wasn't involved in anything at the time, and neither was any of the, the mates <coughs> who were with me were just coming from maybe a dance late at night or whatever. And I suppose it was then I realised, and I wouldn't have maybe formulated it in uh, my mind at that time, but I realised that there were two communities. But it wasn't about what church you went to on a Sunday. It was about that one had the power to have weapons yes. legally and be on the street and stop me and basically do whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have been probably the point where I became more um, thinking about what I should do. But also been you know, we had begun up to dances, maybe singing rebel songs, mm-hmm. Irish rebel songs that they'd heard, and then feeling very hypocritical that you're you're doing that. And so I was I was going through a yeah period of transformation myself thinking more about it and thinking I, I, I need to do something about this and this is just you know hypocritical I'm just singing about things and huh. so I made a decision that I would join the IRA when I was 16 and um, then it becomes difficult because you don't know the IRA and <laughs> they didn't know the IRA in my area because they don't walk about no saying right. where the IRA you know? right. um, but I did end up when I talking to someone who I thought might be uh, it was actually a school school pal who I thought might have some sort of links um, and anyway a few months later I was approached and um, this guy said to me I hear you're interested in joining the IRA and I said yes and then I took my bit another you couldn't join until you were 17 uh, so very shortly after my 17th birthday I was enrolled in the, in the IRA and then became uh, active in it immediately mm-hmm. uh, which would have meant carrying out operations from bombings or shootings or whatever. As a result of that early activity, while I was, I was still um, 17, I ended up on the run, which meant away from home because I was been sought after by the security forces. Uh-huh. And that would have meant staying in other people's houses, we would call them safe houses, or sometimes mm-hmm. going across the border and living in Monaghan and back and forward over. And um, that family, uh, just before my 20th birthday, was captured at mm-hmm. my own house, I went to it probably foolishly and uh, was there probably about three o'clock in the morning and six o'clock the, the police arrived. Wow. So I don't know what was. And that man ended up uh, in prison, was eventually sentenced to life imprisonment for, uh, for IRA activities and membership. And um, it was a special year in 1976, I was arrested in August 1976. My 20th birthday was in September. But 
Prior to 1976, prior to March the 1st, anybody arrested and imprisoned for uh, political offences, so IRA or, or loyalist paramilitaries, you were recognised as um, what the British government calls special category prisoners, but really it was political status. So mm-hmm. you wore your own clothes, you didn't do prison work, you were held in a, it was a special prison, it was a former RAF camp, Royal Air Force camp, mm, okay. so um, outside Lisbon. So it had all the Nizen huts, these space hot sector huts. You would see in the Second World War, I mean, it just looks like a yeah, prisoner yeah. war camp. Um, wire around it and watchtowers with British soldiers and all. But basically, it was yeah, it was a prisoner war camp, and it was because of that image going across the world that the British wanted to change it. Huh. At that time, also, you had internment without trial. So people from 1971, the British had introduced internment, so people could just be arrested and put in the jail without any definite charge. It was just uh-huh. on the basis of. Um, someone saying, oh, what I see in the area, yeah, I, I believe she's an IRA, so, um, tortured, there was, the early ones tortured, it was a case taken to the European court, um, in fact, it has been reviewed again because they now came across information that the British Home Secretary was aware of what was um, mm-hmm. happening, and a really significant thing, you know, I suppose, in relation to uh, the connection with America. Um, the people who had been tortured, I mean, they were they were blindfolded, held in helicopters, told that they were several hundred feet up, and then they were pushed out of the helicopter. But they're really only a few feet off the ground. They were stripped and put into the white. Everything is used in Guantanamo today. Started yeah. uh, here. They were put into white overalls, made the stand spread eagle with their fingertips, and then they fell or, or they were pulled up again and such like, and white noise. So it was. Um, yeah. It was torture. Uh, went to the European Court um, because of, uh, well, probably because Britain's involved in the European Court as well, but uh, they weren't um, condemned for torture, but it was um, brutal and inhuman treatment, oh. it was named for. And that's what the American government has used later yeah. on, but Quintamo, so it's not torture. I think they go back to that ruling. Wow. So last year, the people who had been tortured re, um, retook their case, they appealed it. Because in the meantime, information had become available. Actually, actually uh, Carrington, who was the, the British Home Secretary at the time, actually knew and whether he instigated or whatever, but they knew that it was torture. They were going to use these specific measures. Uh, anyway, so it's it's interesting how things mm-hmm. in a very local place become used, yeah. you know, elsewhere. Anyway, from the 1st of March, 19, what the British did at the end of 75 was to end internment because they were now so embarrassed by it, just looked bad. Mm-hmm. This country, I mean, I spoke to students in England and elsewhere, and with King's College, and, and you talk about, uh, you, know, you say to them, do you, do you realize that at the end of the 20th century, your country was actually interning people without trial? I guess it's almost meant to happen in the Soviet Union or right. China, right? You know, and, and they're, they're oblivious to it. Almost like for four years, people were held in yeah. this democratic verdict commas. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so it was part of a very comprehensive counterinsurgency policy uh, devised by General Sir Frank Kitson mm-hmm. who had been in Aden and Cyprus and everywhere I mean he was the Brits counterinsurgency guy so and he is also am I right in remembering that he is also the person who was responsible for running the operation in Derry in which oh, well, yeah, the yeah, massacre yeah. happened yeah, okay. yeah. and Bobby Murphy not there. I mean it's just it's uh, I mean you just see how every country you know, the same same policy which is basically um, I mean it's it's a very, I've read his book, um, Low Intensity Operations. It's basically... His book is called Low Intensity Operations? Yeah. 
you use local forces rather than your own, so they use loyalist paramilitaries, yeah. who basically were directed by British intelligence. You use the media, you get your people into the media, so the media thing is, is, is pumped out. You use the courts. I mean, the courts were changed from um, the setup that was called Diplock Courts, so they removed juries. So now you only had one judge. Um, and But the judge should, for the comments, remind himself that he was a, a jury as well as uh, as well as a judge. Wow. They changed the powers of arrest that you could be held for seven days without access to a solicitor. They set up new interrogation centres. Um, all specific. So it, I think what happened, the Brits were caught unawares in the early 70s. Um, but once once they started to see how things were, were, were rolling out and that they hadn't been defeated, they, uh, they uh, devised this very elaborate policy. And one part of it, criminalisation was about the prison. So now they're going to say that uh, there was no such thing as political prisoners. There wasn't a political struggle going on here. It was just uh, sectarian warfare. And it's really interesting that in that 76, there was a new radio station set up, which is still going today, downtown radio. And it didn't use broadcast every 15 minutes, which was very unusual at that time. And a whole new language was introduced. So it was about um, sectarian gangs, uh, mafia-style shootouts. That the language is never used. Mafia-style shootouts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That was never used in 75. And I remember talking to a woman that's been interviewed by a woman from BBC Radio 4 who came over from London. And she started to talk. And as we were talking, I was getting a bit annoyed by her language. And I said, do you ever... As a curiosity, just listen to your own broadcasts from, from 1975 because you just actually talk about IRA active service units. That was just you know, the way yeah. to do it. But, in, but a year later, you're talking about sectarian gangs and um. go- godfathers, godfathers, mafia style shooters, against sectarian gangs, and direct credit shown away. And um, she contacted me a few days later and she says, I'm amazed. You know. Yeah. So it's about how you use language, yeah. words, yeah. you drop, and every 15 minutes it's getting pumped out, you know, yeah. there's more and more, and so it just creates this image of, of whatever. But anyway, what it meant for the jail was that um, we would no longer be treated as, as um, political prisoners. They built a new part of, of the same prison called the H-Blocks, there's eight of them. Um, it's going to be single cells, you'd wear a prison uniform, you'd do prison work, you would be integrated with loyalists and ordinary, ordinary prisoners. Um, so the first person to be sentenced <clears throat> under the new regime was a guy called Kieran Nugent from uh, Falls Road in Belfast, who had already been in prison as a schoolboy attorney. He was still uh, 15 or 16 when he was interned, and then he had been in prison wow. for a month. So you're talking about the age of people. When I was 19, almost 20 going in, that was the average age. So um, like Kieran was going to be sentenced. We let my bag on him, it shows you just how... Uh, how ignorant you were about, about things, because you know, we thought this is just another silly policy that the Brits have come up with. You know, give it six months and it'll be it'll be done away with. So right. uh, we're just not gonna just not gonna wear the prison clothes. That's it. I mean, simple as that. You know, and let's get on with it. Um, so Kieran was sentenced to three years for IRA membership. He was taken to the H blocks. They um, told to strip and put on the prison uniform. He refused to put it on and commit this famous statement. You'll have to nail it to my back. Mm. and um, uh-huh. badly beaten, put into a cell. And the only thing he had to clothe himself in was a blanket. And that began, what became known as the Blanket Protest. Uh-huh. And it lasted five years. And it was joined at one at his height. There was probably about 450 of us on it. There was always about 350-some people left because they just couldn't take the... 
well, I suppose the brutality or the mm. whatever else was happening over in family issues and such, such now. But basically, we run a protest which meant you're locked up 24-7. You didn't have radio or TV or books or magazines. It's, it's easier to say what you had, which was a piece of sponge for a mattress. You had three blankets. You had a water gallon. You had the compulsory Bible, uh, which we used to use the pages to roll up for make cigarettes out of. You, mm-hmm. weren't, you weren't allowed to smoke. Everything had to be smuggled. You weren't allowed pens or papers. So all the... For instance, all the writings of Bobby Sands, who was one of the prisoners who then died on hunger strike, uh, is famous now for his writings and his poetry and his songs. But everything he had to hide it inside his body. Yeah. The, the pens, the cigarette papers he'd write on, everything had to be smuggled out, smuggled in. Um, and it's to the, <coughs> the credit of um, the community and the outside, and particularly young women, who became the couriers to the prison, uh-huh. um, smuggling in the letters, uh, smuggling mm-hmm. them out taking them to the IRA. I mean, there was occasionally, uh, and the prison guards did their best to try to capture any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was hidden in all sorts of orifices in their body, nose, mouth, the anus, everything. But, yeah. um, and they did catch some of it, but there was like a like a river of communication floating into the, the prison. Bobby Sands could write to the Army Council of the IRA in the morning, get an answer back in the afternoon. You know. Wow. It was just... So, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, that's about how people in that situation on the outside just, um, I suppose I didn't realize it the later years, you know, the, the, the impact of it, um, because you're living in the middle of it, it's almost like you're in the eye of the storm. But mm-hmm. for people on the outside, I suppose they thought, well, if these people are doing this in jail, then we need to step up to the plate. Yeah, and yet, actually, some of the things they did was. I mean, because they were being beaten off the streets. Plastic bullets were being fired. The number of people killed by plastic bullets by the police mm-hmm. because they didn't want people on the street because that became a visible sign of support. Right. Yeah. Um, we ended up, the protests intensified in March uh, 1978. Uh, so it had been going on for almost two years by then. And I think the prison authorities were surprised that it had lasted that length of time and then began what we believe was a concerted attempt to just literally beat us off the protest. Yeah. Um, denying us toilet facilities, etc., etc. So we ended up uh, <clears throat> without even planning for it in what became known as you know, a wash protest. Or what's interesting, the British referred to it as a dirty protest. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a and big difference between it, saying the no wash. The no wash protest. Uh, we were refusing to wash because right. we wanted proper washing facilities. We wanted out. We right. wanted towels. We wanted um, yeah proper access to washing and toilet facilities. Um, oh. They're denied, and um, yeah, within three days we ended up in what became known as a no wash protest. And it lasted for three years, so I didn't wash from March 1978 up until the 2nd of March 1981. You're kidding. Mm. Wow. So you have a long hair and straggly beard. And uh, and again, thinking on it in later years, I mean, this this is the image your family see when they come up. And, and you got to visit once a month if you're prepared to wear the prison clothes. And initially we didn't, but then when the protest intensified and didn't wash, we decided it was, it was a better tactic for communications. To wear the to wear the prison clothes to go out on the, the visit to, to yeah to, mm-hmm. to tell people what's happening basically yeah um, and uh, you could smoke on the visits too and like you can imagine someone coming up and visit thinking of it now because we were like chain smoking on the visit yeah and you're sitting there and um, I mean I'm tall I'm sick too I'm not I'm about probably thirteen stone now but I end up at that time even before the hunger strike ten and a half stone so you're thin. 
and just like, smoking it. Oh. <laughs> and he knew he outside, and how's wow. things going? You're saying, yeah, everything's sound, you know? And it's like, yeah, right. So, like, the impact on, on, on families. But then, yeah, people came together, there was protests, there was marches, there was everything you think of to try to resolve the situation. And uh, it was in Irish history, there's always been hunger strikes by Republicans over okay. conditions, over recognition. Mm-hmm. Actually, politi- political status had been won in the first place in 1972 after a hunger strike. Huh. Um, so there's always this, this, this aim of doing it, but um, I suppose wiser heads had, had argued against it because we knew at this time criminalization was such a big plank in this overall strategy. Maggie Thatcher was in power at the time and was, I mean, even in England was destroying her own communities, a main community and That's everything right. else, you know, so, um, but anyway, it, it, it came to a point where we just, like, we just couldn't go on indefinitely on a, on a protest like that. There was a hunger strike called at the end of 1980, seven men joined it uh, at the one time, it went on for 53 days and there was all sorts of behind the scenes talks between the Brits and, and the IRA through a number of priests and all the people who are now known, it's all, it's all documented now. But, um, the, the hunger strike then ended when one of the prisoners was uh, at a point of that he was going to die, die soon um, and ended on the basis that there was uh, a document that had already been produced which, which could be enough to, to make a compromise but because nothing was signed, sealed, delivered, agreed upon and the hunger strike was over Brits just reneged on everything uh-huh. so we were sitting Christmas uh, 1980 and the exact same position as we had been before the hunger strike ever began. Right. And um, I suppose probably then the president sort of thought, well, we'll be, you know, Maggie Thatcher talked about this playing the last card, and they probably thought that's um, totally demoralised and disillusioned and all. And there were people there, people who were shattered, people who left the protest. Um, but there's also a lot of anger. And mm-hmm. um, it was decided that you know, the hunger strike would, would start again, there'd be another hunger strike, and this time it would be more. St- I suppose strategically um, devised so it wouldn't be a number of people all at once who then all reached critical point all at once. Bobby Sands who was a, the OC, the officer commanding the prisoners at that time uh-huh. he would start it on his own on the 1st of March which was five years to the date that criminalisation was introduced uh-huh. he would start it, there would be a gap of two weeks, Francis Cuse would uh, start it and then there would be another gap of a week and two other guys, Raman McCreese and Patsy Hara would join it and there would only be the four and uh, and originally it was thought that there wouldn't be any replacements but that changed later on that if one person died then someone else would join the hunger strike uh-huh. and um, when Bobby joined it um, and Bobby was a like a fantastic singer who's become a, like a icon now and yeah. people all have their image and what it is and they see his writings which is great that the, the writings were there but uh, he, like he just was a fantastic singer and had the luxury of being on a wing with him for about nine months one time in 1979 they separated 32 of us from the protesting blocks which were three four and five and they moved us to a, an isolation unit sort yeah. of thing um, yeah. and Bobby's already got up at nights and like would be asking me to do like a one man concert because he just uh, sang like oh. that. Oh, just it's just no one be standing there on a cold night and the and, and the voice reverberates around the the place because uh-huh. um, 
Anyway, he... Uh, Did you know him before? Or you met him... No, I just in met prison? him in, in, in prison, you know, oh, that nine, nine months. He had been in prison before as a uh-huh. political prisoner, got yeah. released, got, was very much involved in the community, community work and development <laughs> community stuff, and then got rearrested again in okay. 1977, or 1987, <coughs> or 77, sorry. Um, <laughs> so Bobby began it and he thought, well, he's going to definitely die because this time the Brits will want the pound of flesh. They want to see someone dead before there be any movement. So there was a very low, and because it had been the hunger strike just a few months earlier, people outside were exhausted, there was very little media talk about it. Mm-hmm. But when Bobby joined it in the first then we, and it was his decision that we would end the, the No Watch protest the following day. So it would be then very clearly about <coughs> our bigger demands, which was our own clothes, etc., etc., rather than some confusion about, well, if we come off the protest, we would get clean cells and washing facilities. That, like, that no longer was the case. That's that's was a good learning point for me because I was really opposed to coming off the I was saying like, Bobby's gonna join Hunger Street the next day we come off the no watch protest. It's like hmm. it's like we're actually almost like sacrificing him or something, you know. But uh-huh. uh it was a total wrong wrong thinking that, that he had the clarity, like it's not about a no watch protest, that's that's now been superseded by the hunger strike. It's about a real demand. That's and right. then I often think that in the back of his head did he have it that if the whole hunger strike failed, at least we were moved out of that situation. Yeah. So it would be easier for the commas to move into some other type of thing. Interesting. Anyway, by totally by fluke, um, by accident, um, while he was on the hunger strike, there was um, a member of parliament for for Manus South Tyrone, which is a constituency in the north. He was a nationalist you know, uh, elected to the House of Parliament in, in England. He was an independent nationalist and was always a supporter of her demands and had visited the jail a number of times. He died um, for some reason the British called a by-election very quickly to, to re-elect someone else and the decision was made to put Bobby forward for election. Now at that time uh, and again it's a difference between hindsight if Bobby won the election but at the time we didn't know if that was a good idea or not. Um, because if he lost, then Maggie Thatcher would say, well, your own people don't even support you. Right. At that time, Republicans didn't stand on elections. They actually boycotted parliaments on oh, election. Oh, so wow. it was a total... Um, <laughs> and it was people like Jerry Adams and that who thought it was a good idea. And to make it work, it would mean all the other nationalist candidates standing down and giving Bobby a, f- a free free run at it. Um, wow. So any vote, if you're going to vote, you can only vote for Bobby if you're a nationalist. People weren't going to vote for the unionist. That's right. And um, and he ended up, yeah, he won it by uh, over thirty thousand folks, which is more than Maggie Thatcher got in her. Wow. <laughs> and we went from a point of you know the start of his hunger strike that um, he started going to die to now suddenly, well, this is it, but one, you know. And again, it shows you how, sort of, how far into the hunger strike. He was about um, when this happened. Probably about forty odd days. It was uh, middle of. I think it was the 20th of April, so it's, you know, it's maybe about 50 days or it's early late 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's still, he's still alive, obviously. And um, and then within a few days after it, um, the only thing the British were doing was getting through emergency legislation that um, no prisoners could stand in for uh, election. Mm. Whereas before that, you could be a prisoner and stand for election. Um, 
now they're afraid that you know someone else would stand. So, oh, yeah. so they're basically saying we're going to let him die, <clears throat> and none of the rescues are going to be able to stand, and that's what they they did. And um, yeah, and then we waited, and time just dragged out, and, and uh, Bobby died after sixty six days on the fifth of May. And then the deaths continued. Francis Hughes died a week later, and Rim McCreese and Patsy Hara a week after that, and then had a policy of people taking their their place. Yeah. And um, and then it came to a point. So, but it meant there was only four ever on it at one time. But then in the middle of June, we decided to increase the numbers on it. So over a number of weeks, um, someone would join it. Um, I think it was about six over a period each Monday. So I ended up joining it on the twenty ninth of June. Okay. Um, but that time, four had died, uh, and one died very shortly after it. Um, Joe McDonald, and it continued on. Uh, and then again, there were attempts to try to uh, resolve it. Just after I joined it, um, I was taken to the hospital uh, for a meeting with this group called the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace, which was a probably well well-meaning, totally naive um, group of people in the church and uh, supported by the Dublin government and people just looking some sort of, I suppose, easy way out. Um, I mean, I've I've, I've written about them. Like There was only one who had any integrity. He was was a priest and he happened to be a cousin of Francis Cuse who had died on hunger strike. And he was also a cousin of another guy, Tom McElwee, who at that time was alive but died also. Mm-hmm. And that was for two days, and talked about how they had reached disagreement, and they had, they had got the um, the basis of our demands. And we're trying to say the basis. What do you mean by the basis? Mm-hmm. Well, more or less, and we're saying we have been on this protest for five years. Poor <laughs> people are already dead. Yeah. We want in black and white. Here's what's available, right. and we couldn't get that. I went on for a whole day, and into the next day, and finally, at one point. Uh, and the, and the dynamics of the, of, of, the, of them changed. On the first day, um, huh. certain people were talking who would have been, like that guy, Oliver Crowley, who was who's the priest. The next day he was quiet and it was it was more dominated by this guy who was a member of the SDLP, which was a social democratic Labour Party here, Nationalist Party. Mm-hmm. And um, he came an MEP, I think, a member of the European Parliament. But anyway, at one point the next day after this, and people were exhausted. Yeah. Know, on hunger strike, all we talked was water and, and salt. You need salt for your... Brain and the electrical impulses and mm-hmm. there, but there was no like way. you would have put the salt in the water and drink. Did, well, it did at the start, which was really terrible. So after that, you no, know, dip your uh, wet your finger and dip it in the salt and take it. It's easier to take the salt that way mm-hmm. rather than because you put it in the water. It's like you, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. You know. Yeah. But anyway, after it's going on all the next day and still this dragging out, and we had asked for um, yeah, black and white, and we wanted Jerry Adams and uh, Danny Morrison to come in and be our witnesses on it. Um, they let Danny Morrison in on a private visit with us, um, but not but not Jerry, but still nothing. And he, as he said, when, when we met, there was still nothing. There's all this vagueness up there somewhere. And at one point then, Tom McElwee, who was sitting across from his cousin, who was a priest, said, so basically you're saying that we have the clothing and nothing else. And to his credit, Oliver Crowley said yes. Mm. And whenever he said that, and the guy facing me, who was a politician guy, and I always thought this ironic, he, he thumped the table and says, it would be criminal to say that. So he's talking about his own <laughs> colleague, 
And I thought it was just the word criminal when the whole thing was about criminalization. Exactly. It was just, it just, um, I don't know. Yeah. But I suppose all right for me around the time, the morning before, whenever we met for the first time, everybody was in, uh, it was the canteen in the prison, hos- prison hospital. And this guy there, Kieran Doherty, who became elected too as a TD in the South. But one person missing was this guy called Joe McDonald. And Joe was nicknamed Fat Joe, because even during the protest, for some reason, <laughs> he was able to hold on to some fat. And Joe was a bit of a, Joe was a, the, the oldest guy, and he died on it. Um. But it's only when I'm missing, and uh, if I hadn't have known that he was missing, I wouldn't have recognised the person that came in there, because he came in a wheelchair. Wow. And he was just, you know, it was just bones, and, and uh, his head was rolling over the side, and his lips were hacked, and it was like saliva coming down there. Wow. But whenever he, he spoke, you knew it was it was Joe and uh he says, Everybody here and um we all get a smoke because you could smoke. <laughs> it, when you're on hunger strike, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Ironically, because you're in the hospital, um you obviously can't work, so you're not refusing to work. Um you have to wear pajamas so you're not refusing to wear the uniform. So so you're actually abiding by prison rules in some sense, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so you're allowed at radio and you're allowed to see the T V and you know. um and it was always that was a good lesson really, um of how when you can see someone who is physically disabled and somehow think they're mentally disabled. Right. Mm-hmm. Or for me I'm not there, and realising no they're not, they're just it looks yeah. And the same with other situations, how it might look a particular way, but yeah. mm-hmm. you know, until you actually go deeper, yeah. you find out what the real the real thing is. You know? yeah. And uh, Brandon McFarlane, who was the, the OC, that was our commander prisoner, he was allowed to join us at the time. And uh, he became the OC. He after became after Bobby, Bobby died. died. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, after Bobby went on the hunger strike, he he then took over. As soon as I Bobby see. joined the hunger strike, then he gave up, being, mm-hmm. which he had to do. And. Uh, oh, okay. <clears throat> And Joe's, Joe says, um, Beck, Beck was Brandon's nickname, Beck McFarlane. He says, uh, don't, be, don't be accepting anything uh, on my behalf. It's the it's five demands or nothing. We had five demands, which was the right to wear our own clothes, right not to do prison work, um, free association, visits, and res- restoration of the laws for mission. Hmm. He says, uh, so don't be, don't be doing anything on... on uh, on my behalf, it's a five demand or nothing. I'll hang, I'll hang in here as long as I can, and uh, it was really. Joe died uh, a couple of days later, and uh, and probably the other thing about Joe when you see it at his funeral, he was um, not to sound sexist or anything, but his his wife Greta, who I know now, was a beautiful, blonde-haired woman. Uh, he had two children, and Joe refused to wear the prison clothes to take visits, so he never seen his wife mm-hmm. or his children until he was on a hunger strike, and then they could come and see him in the hospital, <clears throat> and the same with Rim McCreese, who died. I never take the war the clothes so you know you only get to see your family at a point when you're when you're down and I suppose there's something just about 
you know, we've seen Greta, the vibrancy of her as a as woman. She would come up and visit another prisoner who was in the same wing as Joel. So Raymond McCartney, who was on hunger strike as well, uh, on the earlier hunger strike. So she would bring up and smuggle letters through Raymond that Raymond could give to Joel. Um, oh, wow. So it's just, I mean, I suppose it's things you think of later, all those small, um, it's a small human things on it. The dollar guy who, I mentioned Tom McElwee, who died, his brother was also in the prison. And he had been asking for a visit repeatedly for his brother. Could he get a visit for his brother who's, who's dying on hunger strike? And, uh, and was constantly refused. And then he was uh, granted the visit one day. So he's all excited. <coughs> he's going to see his brother. He knows he's in a very critical state. Gets to the hospital to be told his brother's dead. But he identified him. And um, I was talking about the other day, saying about how we, we often talk about policies and the autonomous case policies were made. You know, people make policies, particular people yeah. sit down with particular names and they sit around a table and they decide policies. So someone decided, no, yeah. you're not getting fitted. No, you're not getting fitted. Mm-hmm. And then true. someone somewhere. And whether they do it out of cruelty, uh, whether they do it out of unconsciousness or whatever else, but there's the ramifications of it and the, oh, the consequences and um, I suppose that has changed because in later years that's, that those are the things that I think about whereas at the time and shortly after you're, you're, you're very much hammering the whole political thing of your political prisoners our whole thinking was if they can criminalise us then they criminalise our whole struggle Yeah. and it's not just yeah. now it's all the whole past and there was a song at the time written and sang by a guy Francie Brawley if you can still hear it it's called uh, I'll Wear No Convict Uniform yeah. Nor make me serve my time. Um, and it sums it up saying that, you know, so uh, I've a comic that, that uh, England might brand Ireland's fight 800 years of crime, crime you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and 10 years later, I was still in the, in, the, in the jail, we wrote a book, clandestinely wrote it in the jail called Nor make me serve my time, where um, we got accounts from uh, I think it's about 28 people. Uh, myself included, just about that period in the in the, in, the, in the history of it to um, well to recall it, and it was at a time when we were very much by then um, starting to write our history because the hunger strike ended, ten people died on it. I survived. I was on it seventy days. Um, the reason it ended was really because our families started to intervene. Um, and your family intervened, right? Intervened, yeah. There had already been about three or four. What what had happened was, I mean, our families weren't IRA volunteers or INLA volunteers. They were just families. And I mean, most of the families wouldn't have been politicised um, because republicanism wasn't a big popular thing in the 50s or the 60s. Right. Our families ended up, our parents ended up being radicalised probably by us. Yeah. Um, like my mother would have been speaking on some platform. My mother would never... I mean, she was, don't mean to interrupt you, a housewife, I mean, she a reared family. That was, in our that time, women didn't generally work. And then later years, she worked in the, the canteen in the local school, right, with, like, giving uh-huh. out meals. So someone who would never see herself in front of a TV camera or whatever else and would never imagine smuggling things in the gym. They should be smuggling in tobacco, you know, or uh-huh. notes. Wow. And you think afterwards, like, how, you know, how that ordeal was when we were coming through searches. No, because it's just, it's... It's totally alien to you, you know. Yes. Like we're young, we're 
you know, we're in the IRA and we're doing these things we expected, but for, for others, different. Um, yeah. So I radicalized that, that element. Um, but they were seeing one person down after another. They came under pressure also from Catholic Church, ironically from a priest who had been supportive of us. Um, and what what was been said to them was, look, um, whenever we lost consciousness that they should intervene. Now, some people wouldn't have had the opportunity to intervene because some people died instantly, like a heart attack. Yeah. Other people drifted into a coma. And uh, and that's what happened with you, right? You drifted into a coma. That's what happened, yeah. And what happens legally is that what's called power of attorney shifts to your next of kin. Yeah. And they can authorize. So they're put in the spot. Yeah. Are you going to let your relative die? Or are you going to um, intervene? Yeah. Um, which is what they did. And um, I regained, that was on Sunday morning. I, my family were out and after 68 days families were usually allowed in at the very last stages Yeah. and I remember them coming in I was lucid then um, I don't remember 69th day but apparently I was still responding um, but I was speaking to people and it was different people but I was responding then on the 70th mm. day they check you do all the you know, reflexes and all and then the doctor pronounces that you're in a deep state of unconsciousness and you're not going to Come round again. Yeah. Um, so I regained consciousness in the in the, the main hospital here in Belfast, the intensive care unit, and um, again thinking about it later later years. Um, it's always a voice I was hearing first, and it was my name, and uh, obviously they must have seen it was starting to respond. What what happens is they put on, they had these two massive um, drips. Okay. Back once just one just glucose and the other was whatever else, so that if you. Whenever they authorize intervention, they immediately give you two large syringe injections into both legs, which apparently can kill you as well because it yeah. floods your body with glucose and whatever else yeah. to keep it. And then they strapped on these, I don't know if that happened in the hospital or in the, in the ambulance. But anyway, it was a, a voice. Um, St. Lawrence, you're in the you're in the intensive care unit in Royal Victoria and you're blind by the stage and you couldn't see. Yeah. Oh. Um, I was... By then, seven and a half stone, wow. which is, you know, you just use pounds in stone or kilograms. We used to so say pounds in the US. Yeah, yeah well, seven stones is seven stone is about uh, 98 pounds. Yeah. So about oh, 104 yeah. pounds or something. So you're, you're only born. Um, For someone six two, yeah. Yeah, and <clears throat> again, what stuck me afterwards, it was, first of all, you're called by your first name. Yeah. And it was a woman's hand on the shoulder. She's like, Lawrence, we're, we're turning you over now. Okay. And, uh, and then we've been very gentle. Um, yeah, so hearing your voice, hearing a woman's voice um, in that situation. And um, a really funny incident. I mean, it shows you in bizarre situations. Um, I end up, I says, look, I, I have to go to the toilet. I have to urinate. You know? yeah. that's, that's okay, Lawrence. Well, so they had to get the or a bedpan type thing or whatever else and um, did what I had to do and then uh, about 15 minutes later I'm uh, it's funny so you're just I remember saying like you're aware that you're alive um, people ask were you happy and delighted I said look I was neither happy to be alive nor sad to be alive I was just if you think of a point of exhaustion yeah. and I multiplied it a hundred times yeah. I just I was just aware that I was mm-hmm. it's a bizarre thing and the only connection was just this person who was 
the nurse uh, beside me. It wasn't thinking, well, what am I going to do tomorrow or next day? Or, mm. or anything. It's just, you've used every physical, psychological, yes. emotional energy just to try to live as long as possible. And, and now I'm thinking I've gone and now I'm, I'm not gone. But about 15, 20 minutes later, God, I need to go to, go to the toilet again. But now, now I'm embarrassed to say it again because I've just done yes. it. So like, you're in a situation and it's like a <laughs> stupid sort of... Yeah. Um, and I, I just like, I'm, I'm sorry about this because you're, you know, you're, as if you're putting them out of their way, you know. <laughs> you know? I said, like, I'm sorry. That, I, I and uh, I remember I laughed. He says, Lawrence, there's two bags of, of, of uh, liquids going through you. See if you if see if you didn't have to go to the toilet, we'd be, we'd be concerned, you know. And it's just yeah. funny how in the middle of something that's in this world, there's this sort of, and it's a human interaction and a bodily function. And then after that, I was taken to the... They just have a military or secure unit at a different hospital where you go with your prisoner and there is three other guys there who had been on the hunger strike who were now off it as well. And then um, about just less than three weeks later, he was taken back to the prison hospital. And uh, they were now taking us back quicker before that some of the people who had I'd come back, I was still blind, it was still, it was still very thin, you were just... You were still blind when you went back to the prison? Yeah, because I ended up with um, I ended up with a permanent damage, this nystagmus, um, oh. where your eyes twitch, but at that time like they're really going, and it's not the eye itself, it's the brain cell is broken down at the optic nerve, they oh, didn't cause wow. it. And actually, what they say is that women who are pregnant and give birth, and they're malnourished, often give birth to babies that uh, have uh, nystagmus or something between okay. lack of nutrition and, and, and this. By the time it would be going rapidly, you'd would, you would be sitting there looking at me and you'd see the eyes going. So then it becomes, you know, you're unsteady and yeah, lights mm-hmm. annoy you and everything. Um, but I'd like, worked on it for years to get to that point where I could just, it, it is a bit relaxing, you know, I'm not trying to force, you know, you could twist your eye in a particular way that it yeah. does stabilize, but then that's when you distort. Anyway, wow. Um, wow. so they took me back and uh, they said, be going to the prison hospital, I says, No, there's no way because the hunger strike is still on, yeah. So there's people there who are, yeah. And I'll think that says, Well, look, um, we'll have to take you there when we arrive, and then we'll take you down to the block. And I never known it was it just very deliberate or not, but when I arrived back to the jail, was taken to the prison hospital and uh, and walked right down to the last um cell, yeah, so you can hear people. And you, you know the sounds because there's people actually been sick at times and throwing up a lot of people could, couldn't. You needed to keep water down during the, during the hunger strike because if you don't, yeah. um, your, your kidneys are under massive pressure because anyway, you're cannibalizing yourself and toxins are all there. So you need to keep drinking water to try to flush that out. Yeah. And a lot of people ended up, it comes to a point where, it comes to a point it's very difficult to drink water because as your sight goes, sense of smell really intensifies. Uh-huh. You smell water. And oh, some wow. what amazing like the, the smells of the, at the end of the day they were flying us in water from Scotland somewhere like bottled water mineral water because we just couldn't drink the stuff in the, the tap and smell it. Um, wow! Things like floor polish uh, really yeah. um, annoy you. I remember one day this prison guard who was who was who was okay and they brought in this jug of, of water and with these things in it. And the only thing I smelt was uh, old spice aftershave. Wow. And I was going, what's that? And he told me what was talking about, and I explained to him. And the only thing he could put it down to was 
three days earlier, he had been out at night and he'd shaved and put on aftershave. But it was three days ago and he'd washed and showered, no sense in him, but wow. I could just smell oh. the, the reeks of it. Yeah. Anyway, so I was taken back in, walked down there, and, um, and that was an experience because you're back in a place that yeah. I was like three weeks earlier, you know what people are going through, um, you can hear the sort of sound, you can hear some of the families with people. Um, and then when it came to two o'clock, I was taken taken back to the block, and uh, and that was when I was put back in the cell. The door closed. And it was the first time in jail I felt really claustrophobic. Yeah. Uh, I never felt when I went, when I'm in the jail originally. I don't know where it was. I've been out in the hospital where you're in a bigger mm-hmm. ward. It was, okay, it was still yeah. a security ward, but there was four beds, so it yeah. was a biggish one. And then the hunger strike ended about three or four days later, okay. uh, and we got her the right to wear our own clothes and for us it was the most important but five demands but it was the most important one um on one level because we said we never wear the prison clothes and yeah. that stigma of it we didn't but on a more practical level it allowed us to um get out of our cells yeah. for the first time in five years because we were our clothes on we'd go to the canteen get our meals we'd go to the exercise yard and then we could start to organize and strategize where do we go from here yeah and and there was a lot of um, sorrow at the time. Uh, you know, people who would, well, they've been friends or part of our wing, part of our life for for five years. Yeah. Um, but there was a real, there was anger and determination that we would get the outstanding demands, and we would use whatever means necessary, bar none, yeah, to get them. But it was, but it was a real. Uh, soul searching moment for us too because we knew we were going to have to rethink yeah. what we were doing and I've often up down now like 1981 for us was uh, I call it the end of rebellion and the beginning of revolution because yeah. I suppose the Irish have always said something they're called as rebels but it's okay, yeah, it's okay saying yeah bring it on we'll, we'll, take, we'll take whatever you throw at us and we'll throw it back at you you know um, but that's that's not good enough, you know. You need to yeah. strategize where yeah. are we going and not be deflected by some of the deliberate things that exactly. they do. Mm-hmm. We knew there's never going to be another physical protest in the jail that will supersede what's just happened over the last five years, ten people down and and, and, yeah. and five years of intense protest. And the Orbeck lesson we should never again allow ourselves to be locked behind doors because of our own sort of ideas of principles or something. Yeah. We need to be out and it was a great thing about uh, and I have a like, tattoo in my back and I have a willow tree which is about how we need to bend and be flexible uh-huh. and bounce back up again yeah. because every time you know, the stronger the wind the deeper the roots go yes. but if you're inflexible then you're easily crushed you, yes. you just snap yes. whereas if you can bend and, and, and come up and, uh, but it was we stayed on it no, we still refused to work um, so we're still more or less on a protest, but now that our clothes, we could get out, we could still get visits, but we could only get half of what we were entitled to. Yeah. We knew we couldn't maintain that forever. A lot of people also left the protest, knew people coming to jail weren't allowed to join us. So we knew that couldn't go on, and, uh, and what we agreed on a day was that we would uh, go into the system. We would say we're prepared to do prison work, but we would do it with the intention to, um, well, we wouldn't work. We'd say we're working. We'd always agreed we would, in our own wings. We would you know, give out food, we'd clean the wings and all the rest of it. That's not work. That's just keeping your environment yeah. properly. Yeah. But the workshops, like they took people down to make uniforms or make chairs or furniture. 
we wouldn't do that, we'd just sabotage the work, uh, workshops and <laughs> had planned it on a specific date. We would just burn the workshop to the ground. Excellent. Was the plan. Um, so we will say we're going to work, wow. but we'll not, we'll not work, you know. Yeah. Uh, but getting to that point, um, and again, a big lesson to me because it's the heart versus the head. You know, the head saying, yep, this is what we need to do. And the heart saying, so we're going to do now what, you know, 10 people died saying they wouldn't do prison work. And yeah. now we're going to do prison work. Right. And your head saying, yeah, but we're doing it so that we, can. we actually win yeah. that attempt to get it back. And I remember the day when we, had, we agreed to come off. And we did a lot of other elaborate stuff. We um, we sent off what was specific people into the other blocks who were conforming to start to agitate there and mm-hmm. provoke the lawyers into uh, going on a protest. So they'd be in protest and we wouldn't be. Because um, <laughs> oh, for years we had been in the protest and losing everything and they reaped the benefits. Because I mean, we got, they got, you know. So we deliberately um, orchestrated a lot of things there. You know? And it was... It worked really, I mean, that was very dangerous time. I mean, there was weapons caught in the jail, uh, there was fire bombs and off that the IRA was setting, um, there was beatings. Um, it was a very tense period. And it was interesting, again, something about becoming conscious of yourself. Um, what really worked in our favour was the image, <clears throat> probably now the loyalists out of us, of these just maniacs, you know, the venom. Protest for five years, no wash protest, and these they'll do anything. Mm. So you already had that sort of, yeah, they'll do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so you better, you better lock up and you know, do whatever you need to do because, like, so it, it worked. I'm not even realizing that later on because it's always been an interesting thing that then realize how others perceive you rather than how you perceive yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I remember the governor come to me and said, so every two weeks you're asked, you know, you prepared to uh, by prison rules, do prison work. And I said, yes. And your man looked at me, you know, with a big smile in his face. So, McEwen, you were going to do prison work? And he knew what he was saying, and I knew what he was saying, you know, after mm-hmm. our comrades down. And I says, yes. I'd asked me that twice, and I was sticking to my throat to, to say yes, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, he had a big smile in his face because he was thinking, oh, we'll have them, you know, and slammed the door over again. But what I meant was we ended up, we all come on, on a particular date, come off the protest, and all Republicans were, were together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, again, it was a whole new environment, and, uh, yeah, there's a whole pile of stories there that were, were, were great, but there was this whole energy. And what I again showed was how a jail... Can, and any prison functions with the cooperation of the prisoners right. to a certain degree you have to some sort of arrangement otherwise it'll just be total coercion right. and whatever else you know American jails are brutal but, uh, so they had their rules here we're going to take these prisoners out to go to the workshop and all the rest of it but if you're dealing with a group of people who are totally disciplined um, so in the morning for instance you're meant to be out in the the, the circle area of, 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 of the block at say 8 o'clock to go to the workshop so everybody has to be there. So what you have to do is get somebody to take their time. So you plan it right uh, on a new hole back for two minutes. You're going to the toilet. Where's, you know, first Autumn Brown, I'll come in now. Then, okay, get you out. Still waiting. Somebody else has to has to come. Someone goes out and remembers something. They have to go back. So you ended up with this group of prisoners down in the middle of the, the circle. Uh, the system can't work because, you know, because you're not abiding as, like, the the prisoner is totally conforming. It's going to be there at eight o'clock, and everybody's going to be there. 
and the jail will work smoothly and they get them all there and then they'll go to the workshop. Yeah. Whereas now it might be 8.30, 8.45 before you could even get this group of people out. And the whole mm-hmm. attitude was they'll just by the administration will just 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 try to get them out there somewhere already. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they'll be taking people to like the metal fabrication workshop and make um, chairs. So what the guys did was just set the I was working as an orderly in the, the blunt. We just set the machine to make the chair with four different lengths of legs. So, <laughs> so it's a use, useless chair. Or as one guy did, uh, like, there were some expensive machines, like open it up where the oil goes in, pour in sand, Ooh. close it up again and switch it on full blast. Like, the whole machine just burned out, you know. Uh, but the other thing that, obviously the IRA is still then behind the scenes on this, um, and what they were now doing was using because people were taking out the jail, it's the first time you could see the whole layout of the jail exactly. You, know, you could ah. see it in the past, a wee bit in the past. Have you seen it? You could observe how you open the gates, um, so what the attitude this, is. Tracking so all this data. All, all the knowledge going, all going back in the central uh, thing for uh, an escape committee. And this guy, uh, who used to be on the wing with me, Larry Marley, uh, who had already escaped in the 70s, um, <laughs> come up with this idea, because all the people, of course, now protests over and now people are thinking of individual escapes and could you get over the fence and there's all sorts of fences and walls and everything else but Larry was and I always thought this was amusing he was thinking on a, on a mass scale and he was how could we take out a large group of people out of here yeah. and uh, and I often thought that was the most audacious thing about it that in no circumstances he could think way way outside of the box mm-hmm. and, say, and what uh, we planned to do was that we would get the um, food lorry that drove in each of the blocks that they would take it over and literally drive out the front gate ah. and, uh, and that's what happened uh, wow. in 1973 so it was less than two years after the, the hunger strike and one of the <clears throat> one of the blocks H7 um, where they'd been able to lull the, the guards into a, a false sense so they deliberately did it so rather than like all the animosity which was in the blocks in this block because there's a few uh, people who who had their heads screwed on that thing about thinking outside the box. Okay. They started to become friendly, which caused a lot of um, dissent in other blocks because we're hearing guys making tea for prison guards in H7. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's like that sort of... Like, I'm starting to say about comrades, like, mm-hmm. like what's happening? Like, what's, 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 what's the crack? And then the more confusing thing was there's a few other people there who you knew, like Bobby Story, who come on from outside, who the Brits were always trying to get into jail. They now, they now was sentenced. He became. He was in charge of the of of the escape on the day. You're thinking, like he's there. But what it was, they're lulling them into false sense of security. Um, I mean, they got weapons smuggled in, and uh, on a Sunday afternoon, at a designated time, and they had to be in such a synchronized movement because there's something like twenty eight alarm points. So the prison guards in the different wings in the block had to be taken immediately at one time, um, and what you had was these number of guys in the circle, the main, the main part, and they'd already broken down the screws that, you know, you just say, open the, let, let me down to such and such a wing, or have to take the cleaning machine down, the bumper it's called, uh-huh. and there was a code, shout it in the wing, anyone, will you send out the bumper? And it was Bobby's story, shout at this, mm-hmm. and that was the signal that in each of the wings, there. they took the guards, but also took the guards, they had to get from there, these other kits had to be open to take, there's two wings, so like it was a very complex thing, and a one on field. Anyway, they, they, they took it and they were in charge of the block. They arrested all the, the prison guards. And, uh, and what I've often said to people afterwards, I mean, so many other different stories of it, 
There was a number of prison guards there who were amongst the most brutal during the protest period. And none of them were touched. And I've often said they just got them in bed against the wall and executed. Yeah. No one would ever be made held accountable because nobody would have known who did it. Yes. Unless someone confessed to it. That's right. None of them were touched. Um, they were tied up. Their uniforms were taken. The fan already came. Um, it ended up that one of the guards in the emergency control room was told uh, there was a guy holding the gun on him. And uh, he was told not to move. He was told to get the step back from the... Because the main... Yeah. That would, that would alert the whole jail. And the guy did uh, move till the... Uh, to hit that arm and he was shot in the head and a small caliber of guns um, he wasn't sure he was injured as he was back in work a couple of weeks later but then they took him they, oh. they, they released one of the medical guards brought him out to, to give him medical aid and oh. all the rest of it which slowed up the escape the lorry came in they took charge of the lorry put 38 prisoners on it drove down to the front gate um, the plan was that there'd be a press conference in Dublin that was very <laughs> They get down to the front gate, but because it's been slowed up, it's now at a time where a new batch of guards is coming on and, a new, and another batch is going off. So there's a lot of guards at the one place at the one time. Um, and whilst the IRA, the prisoners were able to take some of the guards and one of the gunpoint to get the gate opened, a number of others seen that. But they're confused because these guys are wearing uniforms. Yeah. But then some spotted what was happening and there was a whole melee and basically they weren't able to drive out. <coughs> they had to just jump out the road and run. Oh, wow. and ran across barbed wire fields and <clears throat> someone got caught immediately someone got caught after a couple of days but 19 of them got totally away and wow. uh, over, over wow um, <laughs> and they're really interesting I mean there's a whole pile of other stories and I mean it wasn't just an escape it was yeah. I've often said it was like probably the IRA's biggest operation in the whole, whole yeah. time because South Armagh which is where you're at with Sleeve Gullion yeah had a really strong IRA unit. They're on the border. Very few of them ever captured, shot down helicopters and everything. Um, very, very strategic, and they're thinking that, and accepted by the British Army. They'll say that like this: they were up against yeah. a very formidable foe, but they knew their own area. The British Army only came in on helicopters. They didn't do foot patrols. So basically, on the ground, the IRA controlled the area on the ground, radios, all the rest of it. Anyhow, because the escape was happening, they got a lorry. Um, built especially with um, three layers of armour plating on it uh, the wheels were solid solid wheels so they couldn't be shot out yeah. solid rubber uh, minutes slowed the whole lorry down um, they had a, a roof on it they could slide back and they had three anti-aircraft guns mounted in the back of it and they drove right up to almost at the jail uh, a wee small village which is a very Protestant unionist village called Scarva um, and the guy who was in charge of it he was killed later uh, Brandon Molly and Brandon Bourne both of them were killed in the explosion hmm. um, so they drove up and the whole plan was the lorry will come out of the prison and drive down and even if the alarm goes up this armour plated lorry will get behind it so anything coming land rovers or helicopters they're going to they're going to take them out wow um, and like I've been a long distance to the border but um so like the, the, the level of, of, of uh, operation into it, yeah. and it ended up, it didn't happen that way. Guys ran, they had to hijack cars, take over houses, etc., etc. But I was talking to one of the guys who was in the lorry, and uh, so it came a point, they waited half an hour longer than they went. They were already here on the radios because they were, they were tuned into the, the police for a way of things. So they're hearing messages, so they knew 
uh-huh. the alarm has gone up some some had something's gone wrong so, yeah and they're driving back and he says we're just sitting there saying hopefully for fuck's sake come <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were so geared up to attack and they made their way back and then uh, a number of the escapees including brandon mcfarland who had been the oc uh-huh. uh, and our guy they ribbon made it on foot over the hedges and fields over three days walking at night and staying hidden during the day and they they made it right down to south Armagh. wow and then they, they actually met up with the first guys they met was uh you know amazing the ones who had been on the lorry you know but anyway it meant that after that um prior to that prior to the skip we were uh, like the prison rules were it was compulsory to do prison work it now changed to you're not allowed to do prison work <laughs> <laughs> And end of all the workshops that we had, uh, <laughs> there. Wow. but the other interesting thing about that night, I wrote a chapter in a book about this. Um, called it the twenty fifth of September. So the, the escapees have left the block. Yeah. So anybody left, or people who aren't on the escape, uh, people who are doing a shorter period of sentence or whatever else. Um, the RUC come in, the British Army come in, they searched the place and searched everybody to see if there's any weapons about. Then they were happy that there wasn't. Prison guards come in. And they moved the people from that block over to another block and they beat everyone and going across. Yeah. And they had dogs and made them run a gauntlet. And actually one um person tried to intervene and said, That's not right and the governor was there and he had a gun was on his hand. You haven't got the stomach for it, take yourself off the fuck. And they and they're all awarded they took a court case later and they're all awarded damages because it was so that was so I mean, they were all they made sure they got. They were denied medical treatment for about three days, but then a day they got it, and all the bite marks and all were still there. And, oh my and, and god! Marks and it's um, wow. all. Anyway, so that was. Wow. Then the jail changed, and we got into. Now we had the conditions we wanted. We weren't in protest. We had our own clothes. You didn't have to do prison work, and now we can start to focus on what we'd always wanted to do, which was develop our own training camp. Basically, I mean, uh, it's always ironic that. The Brits wanted it. The Hitch Blocks was meant to be the breaker's yard. I think it Maggie Thatcher actually said that term. And to me, it became the most vibrant, creative training camp that I ever had. You know, because uh-huh. we're now together in one place and we could focus on education. Yeah. And, and then in later years, developed it. I'd been very much involved in it and then became in charge of it and on the camp staff. And then introduced more like creative. Right, and started Rowan Magazine, which was. Um, Again, done clandestinely at the start. It was produced entirely by prisoners. Uh, contributions were from prisoners in any of the jails, including America, Europe, England. Mm-hmm. So they would send the stuff in. The guy I worked with, Brian, he was appointed the first editor. Um, later years, the magazine was allowed to come into the jail. Wow. Uh, and we could do it officially and all the rest. Just as, as things changed. Yeah. Um, but the idea of doing the magazine, and the other things we did was to say, like, that it would be our voice. It was called The Captive Voice. On the Glor- captive voice. Uh, on Glor Gofa, which is Irish for it. On Glor Gofa stroke the captive voice. And the I mean the first editorial was sent up with you know, it looked about how, you know how things are maintained not just by military force but by media, church, yeah. state, schools, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And so we needed mm-hmm. we needed to struggle against all of those and this captive voice would be be our uh, voice. And yeah, we still still have copies. And the idea was to use short stories and and I mean, the short stories or as political analysis or as artwork or as whatever else. But um, it was to raise issues, and it's interesting how. Well, on the second issue, I wrote a book 
or a, a short story. Um, it's one of the issues which um, I was talking earlier on there about Joe and Greta, Joe who died in the hunger strike, but there's always an issue about, okay, it's mostly men who are in the prison, but I should have said earlier about mm-hmm. women in the prison and on the same protest as well and on hunger strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, lesser number, but, but there. But one of the big issues obviously come up was about, well, how does people maintain relationships on the outside? Uh, and a lot of men in jail, very probably for the first time, they're now very vulnerable, like their wife or their partner's outside. So, is the relationship going to continue? Is yeah. it going to whatever? Is she going to end up big fear, end up with someone else? So, what some people always did was then end the relationship, which is a way of self protecting, you know, yeah. to the end it now. So, when it happens, it's uh, and others maintain it, and, and, and thankfully, a lot of relationships continue. But, but it's because of what we're part of our education into feminism and all the rest of it and trying to explore ourselves and I ended up in a relationship then with someone outside so you're posing well can you have some form of because people laugh at it prison relationship like, like, uh-huh. you know it's silly or whatever else but then you say well do you deny yourself some sort of um, mm. engagement with someone outside just because you're into you and you're, you're doing life you're not getting out um, but then what's the implications of that there you know you know like this to some new guy right on the blocks and go, yeah, I've been with, you know, who's maybe less uh, politically aware by now, yeah. and they've been more like, yeah, it was like, it was so-and-so on the outside, you know, and maybe that's the person who's <laughs> the partner with, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so I wrote a short story, which was about uh, <laughs> someone, it's called The Visit, it was made into a short film uh, years afterwards, but it was a woman coming up and visit. Uh, and it was, the idea was to raise the issue, because yeah. it's not talking about it, sort of below the surface, but taboo. But it was a woman coming up on the visit, and you don't know until the moment she's about to walk into it that you realise she's she's pregnant. Mm. And oh, it was always amazing. And then the story just ends, you know. So the number of people I would have met afterwards go down to the visits because you're meeting, you're in a visit room. There's all people going about, and everything's fairly relaxed by then. And people, women come around. So what happened? Did you tell him? Did you? Th- <laughs> no, so, uh, oh. how, how did he respond? I went. <clears throat> Yeah. See, I didn't yeah. so the idea was <laughs> to, to start to broaden out from more mm-hmm. Norway was with gay prisoners and did an article again it was the first time I come up and it's almost like well we're puppies aren't gay <laughs> like we don't have any gay IRA prisoners you know <laughs> it's almost um, uh-huh. and a couple of years ago when the South did the um, same sex marriage referendum yes. it was interesting Sinn Féin resurrected the article we had done way back in oh, wow. 80, wow. 81 you know, it was like 25. Yep. Like we were ahead of the policy by 25 years, you know. Yep. So it was a, yeah. I suppose <laughs> it went away beyond what you're, you're looking for there. No, but, no, this um, is amazing. And and you became a poet while you were inside. I mean, I feel like you were saying <coughs> that this is really where your journey as a writer. as a poet, as a writer began. Yeah, I say I had that very intense political education program mm-hmm. based on uh, Renz Apollo Ferrari. Uh, yes. the pedagogy of the press I remember getting originally after the um, hunger strike we weren't allowed uh, any books other than novels but what our families were doing they said is take the, the cover off novels yep. the cover off non-fiction books and yes, put the covers nice. on so it comes into the prison guard looks at it and goes it's yeah some <coughs> some romance novel some romance novel yeah, <laughs> oh, that's and nice. I remember um, it was a friend of mine got strategy pedagogy but it got you the depressed. Uh, yeah. And he had been on Hunger Strike 2, Jack and Wallen. It's really a small book. I remember reading it, and it took me a couple of times to read it to, to, to totally take in what was there. And yeah. thinking, wow, that's that's amazing. But then the next thought was, yeah, but it wouldn't work here. And then the other thought was, well, why would it not work here? Uh, well, because I think we're like 
an army and we need some sort of structure and all the rest of it where it says it's very sort of uh-huh. you know teacher's a pupil pupil's a teacher and all the rest of it but the good thing was that, and I've often said this like I haven't got a GLA I also did a doctorate and whatever else but it was it was more to write a book rather than get an academic qualification right. but during the period of so I've said like I've done loads of education in the jail outside the jail but the actual five year period of protest was the most educational in my life because it was unlearning all the crap that's right. Um, that's right. You suddenly realise, I have this opinion about this, but what's over here? I'm maybe a bit, you know, racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever else, but just a, a you know, just a model of things. So you may be okay in one subject, and then an or you're sort of uneasy, and maybe that's not really right, but there's no coherent thing. Like you end up yes. realising, hey, just these thoughts that I have never ever sat down to sort of, I wouldn't even call it this at the time, reflect upon and say, well, so how do I see black people? How do I see people who are uh, homosexual? And you're talking about 1976, so it's it's gone back quite a few years. <laughs> you know, you've been reared Catholic and rural, yes. and there's sort of a level of understanding, you know, yeah. sexuality or, or other things, or <clears throat> communism or whatever else. You know, it's it's um. So it was, I mean, it's very, but but that question sort of then came up like, why or you were now suspect of anything you'd ever been sort of told? You know, so thankfully there was that desire to question things so whenever yeah. I read Paul Ferrari's and part of me was saying oh, but it wouldn't work here at least there was another part saying well why would it not mm-hmm. and that's what we ended up developing in the jail largely that, that, that approach but, but the real I suppose it was a moral pressure for people to get involved but not to the point where no it's compulsory education wasn't compulsory getting away from lectures about things to more about talking about things yeah. and then it was it was almost by accident we ended up with um, around about um, 87, 88, we got another guy, again, we had been on hunger strike, he was writing to a woman in Sheffield in England, and she was in a poetry workshop, and she sent him a wee small basic pamphlet, a few pages stapled together of exercises that they were doing, and we started more as a um, pastime, and winter night, you know, yeah. can't go out to the yard, or, or the slot, whatever else, and it just unleashed the sort of um, mm. creativity around the place, and people really into it, and um, and then we did myself and Brian got a Brian who became the editor of the Capital Voice actually typed up we were at that time allowed typewriters everybody else oh, wow. was to run them out because we're getting computers and it's it's yeah. the shield was getting typewriters wow we didn't have them before so we typed it up and again the really important thing because our our attitude was if you get something handwritten yeah it's maybe okay but if you actually type it it looks different yeah you put a cover on it. Yeah. Color cover, whatever else, suddenly takes on significance. Now, the words yeah. are the exact same. Yes, no, but it makes a huge difference. Huge difference was yeah. just the appearance. So it became, so what does we typed it up, send it around the blocks, did so many copies. And then I really encouraged others, and that was out of that, then we started the magazine. Um, so then I wrote to um, a company in, in, in Galway, who are now publishing the book I just did before Christmas. It's called Salmon Poetry. They just mm. set up a few years earlier. We're just saying, like, let's see what someone outside Same. thinks about her poetry yeah. so wrote out and put us on this uh, to the, the woman who was in charge of it Jessie Landemi who's still in charge of it and she put me in touch oh. with this poet who was just emerging at that time Rita Ann Higgins uh-huh. it was a woman who ended up in hospital for about a year with tuberculosis uh-huh. she was semi-literate when she was in the hospital and because people brought her in books and that there she actually started to become Richard and chat, took a real liking for poetry and got out and started reporting and writes is amazing. It's a really working class, I don't say that in a derogatory way, but the, the issues that 
people yeah. on the ground are facing mm-hmm. her she just has a great way of, of getting boards against the administration against mm-hmm. oppressive regimes of whatever nature you know just mm-hmm. a really insightful look and she's published a lot of books since and so that was like the start of encouraging they published some of her poetry in the outside which I think then encouraged us to to continue writing and uh, and then it was only in recent years I decided because I still continued outside but I didn't see myself as writing as a as a as a poet as such but it was something that I liked to do at times certain things happened that I liked to mm-hmm. since almost documented that way so I set her off the collection and uh, thankfully it was published just before Christmas era. and this is the collection Threads Collection called Threads yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and half of them are in, in the jail and half of them outside and part of Threads because uh, at the same time as I was doing that I started a project um, a couple of years ago in uh, 2016 because that was like the 40th anniversary of the whole prison protest beginning in 1976 okay. and I want to do something artistically about it rather than just yeah. writing something about it and in the meantime I had got a blanket, an original blanket from the jail. Once the jail closed, release all the prison. Um, there was ones going on who were doing like um, wasn't construction work, but actually removing other stuff. And anyway, they took a blanket. They, they got a blanket and they came and said, "I don't know, you might want this, you know." And they gave me an original blanket from the jail. Jesus. So I'd always had it in my uh, <laughs> my attic. Like, what do you do with a, a blanket? And then I, <coughs> I thought what I want to do was to, um, or what I did was give it to a dressmaker. And asked her to make certain clothes for me, like a waistcoat and scarf and a bow tie, and particularly a bow tie because it's it strikes you as very formal. And um, yeah. um, I had to take a jacket that I had and do the lapels uh, with part of this blanket and pockets not there. And then I would photograph people who had been on the protest and been on hunger strike, including the women in uh, in Armagh prison and some of the women on the outside who protested. Uh-huh. Armagh because women protested uh, the outside. Uh, mothers and all the rest of it weren't, weren't, weren't only a blanket like they didn't wear clothes on it they wore only a blanket so that Outside was totally authentic protesting. yeah yeah wow yeah. Um, there's a woman particularly Mary Neelis her two sons were on the blanket and in 1970 shortly after the protest had started um, there was this whole again go back to the media there was a whole drive around what was called the peace people okay there was no politics just wanted peace it doesn't matter about the issues. <laughs> they were invited down to Derry to the cathedral, the cathedral in Derry, where you were down. Invited uh, by the bishop, who was a friend of Mary's. And Mary would have been more at that time a nationalist rather than Republican. And she was outraged that these people had been invited. But what about her sons in jail? So she went down, as for the moment, um, wrapped in a blanket, stood outside the uh, cathedral with an our young woman whose husband was next door to me at that time in, in the jail. And she was just married, she was 18, Kathleen, mm. uh, Kathleen McKellen. And they stood with Blangus and interviewed Mary last year for a project. And said, yeah, we only, we only had the Blangus, we had nothing else because we wanted to be like the men in the jail. And she was saying about parishioners coming out and poking her with umbrellas and all, outraged. Oh, wow. How dare she embarrass the bishop? Her own mother didn't speak to says for about three weeks. Wow. Um, and she fell out with the, the bishop who who was the Bishop in Derry at Bloody Sunday, you see him holding the white. Oh, wow. Uh, Eddie wow. Daly. We did a lot of other good work, but um, yeah. they never they never spoke after him. And there was a photograph taken, thankfully, at that time, which has become an iconic photograph yeah. of, of, of Moreno. And then they're talking and she tells you, and the funny things, you know, they're, they're away around the country, 
doing the various talks and a lot of times we'd be doing talks outside Mass on a Sunday. And she said, so we're up in this truck, you know, like an ordinary lorry, <clears throat> to stand up to, to do the talking. And she said, you're there and you're talking and you're holding the blanket around you and all the rest of it. And it finished talking and there's a crowd around and you're clapping. And, and then she says, we'll have to get down off the top of the lorry. And she said, it's pretty difficult. You have blankets and all around you. <laughs> right. So, no, she says, one said, well, come on ahead, I'll give you a lift. And she said, there's this woman in front of hers, and Mary is a great community worker, and she was a Sinn Féin activist for years, and an active representative, and she said, uh, forget who the woman was, Margaret or something, goes a step forward, and she's, she's trying to step down to someone, the woman behind has a foot on the blanket, oh, so no. she says, woman gets down, the blanket comes off, and I says, there's obviously this big farmer from Mayo who thought, I've died and gone to heaven, because he had said there, jump on down and get to here. Oh my God. So it's funny how people, in the midst of all of that, they're have the, have the crack about it. Mm-hmm. So it was. Uh, I don't know how I got on to on that there, but it, well, so we the, the idea was the just to to, to subvert mm-hmm. to subvert the image of that period, yes. uh, which was all about long hair and beards and shit on the walls and all the rest. Of it. Now it was people who are happy to say, "Yeah, we wore the blanket. We were. Yeah. We don't walk about today with a blanket on us, but we walk in." And there was a. At the time I was doing it, there was this uh, project in in Ireland called the uh, National Treasures which was organised by RTE, which is the National Radio and Television Station mm-hmm. in the South. They were done in conjunction with the National Museum of Ireland. So what they wanted to do was to go into different parts, Belfast, Dublin, Cork and Galway, and um, ask people to bring in items that are some sort of historical or social significance okay. that would become part of this National Treasures. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paula McFedrich, who's the artistic director I work with at the Boys Theatre, she says, when you take in your, your, your items on I was sort of half an hour. Anyway, so I went down to the Titanic Quarter, which is where they're having it here in Belfast. It's this big thing about Titanic ship and all that. Oh, it's a yeah. big visitor centre, and this mm-hmm. is where they're having it. And I said, so I walked in wearing it, and I had the waistcoat on and the bow tie and all and that. So I thought it was easy wearing the scarf. And, and I walked in, and um, it was amazing because they were all over it then, and the RT wanted to film it. They'd already heard about this project of, of, of what was going on. But what was really moving for me, because I said in, in the, I made a calendar with the photographs and I explained like what I was trying to do. And I said, I, I wanted elegant photographs. And elegant wouldn't be a word you use in it every day sort of thing, you know. Um, so I was sitting at one point and I was waiting on to be filming for uh, for the TV. And this woman, probably about 70, she was standing across. I seen her looking at me and then she came across. And I was sitting in a chair and she... Um, and she was foreign, but she lived here for, she was like from Sweden or Norway, that sort of thing. But she had lived here for 30, 40 years. She says, um, I just want to say, sir, you look extremely elegant. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, said, I, I was really tickled and I says, well, thank you, madam. I said, I said madam, because she said, I says, um, the heart, you wouldn't believe these were made out of a prison blanket. And she says, get away. I says, yes. I says, it's a blanket. Uh, during a period of protest in the jail, and I was on and got this. And she says, oh, I remember, I remember those days, they were, they were very, very tough days. But you can through it, and I want to say again, you look extremely elegant. Yes. And I was really, really moved. Yes. You know? yeah. um, so it was great, and I ended up on RTE, like the radio programme, the arts programme did it, and Irish mm-hmm. Times, which is made. So it was interesting how, yeah. by presenting, because... Yeah. As soon as I was asked, and so these clothes, where do these clothes come from? Or as well, they come from the blanket, exactly. protest, hunger strike. So you bring out the whole story. Yeah, all right. But yeah. it's done through arts, and somehow it seems 
okay, yeah. and okay, times have moved on since then. But the idea was to yeah, subvert that image to say that mm-hmm. we've lived on through it, we survived that. We're proud of her today. And actually, one of the women who was photographed in it, she just died there two weeks ago. So it's like, wow, she died. It's like, it shows you the importance yes. of document and particularly the women's story because they never get the same coverage. Oh, yeah, of actually engaging in that. Type of thing, and funny, Mary Neelis, the woman I was talking about there earlier, who had the sons in it, whenever I first said to her about it, she says, no, I'm not so sure, that sounds a wee bit, you know, a calendar, you know, <laughs> are, we, are we sort of, she thought maybe trivialising things we but right, and then when right, she did right. it, she says, oh, no. I'm delighted I did it, just, yeah. oh, good. I didn't see yeah. what would be the, be the impact, you know. So that's how a lot of the art stuff happened, and then we got out of jail, and uh, me and Brian wanted to write a thong about the hunger strike called H3, and... Mm-hmm. And we started to work as a playwright and doing everything else at the same time. And mm-hmm. um, Brian tragically died in uh, 2005, he was only 45. And I continued on doing my own stuff. And arts has been to use the arts, and particularly theatre, uh, or film too, to um, well, raise a lot of the issues that are, yeah. that are there. It's a safe place to, to raise issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it humanizes people in mean, the last. Play I did, and you've met Will, you know, Will Glendelling, who uh, is from a very different background than me, Protestant Unionist, former UDR man. Um, but we've worked over the years, and he gathered um, oral history of former servant RUC officers and uh, Garda Shikana, which is the police in the south of Ireland. And uh, I wrote a play about them, their experience on the border, which people find very funny of my background that I'm mm-hmm. writing about them, but all the reviews of the play itself have been. An excellent and it's an amazing play. Yeah. It's truly so powerful. Yeah, yeah we talked about how much it really but... challenged our own assumptions yeah, and thinking, and um, it humanizes. You know, it, it does. It humanizes. But I want I, it's. You've done an incredible job of basically moving through every question we possibly came up with to ask you, um, and this feels like a really incredible place to land. Which is like when we came and we saw the play that night we were like how do you get from being you know a prisoner of war and going through the experience you went to to writing this play and you spoke about Che Guevara's um, quote true revolutionaries are guided by feelings of love and um, I'd love for you to to end us there to land us there just like how did you get there and, and what do you see as the potential outcomes of doing that humanizing work um well, I, suppo- I suppose, um, I mean, the present protests, apart from saying educationally, how you rethink your thinking on so many levels, and I suppose one of the things, particularly, uh, a lot of work I actually do is with women and women roles. I yeah. mean, Green and Blue is male, but a lot of the things I generally reckon is, is female roles. And it's about, uh-huh. um, and Joanna, who you met, and coming to the jail and did stuff. How you, so you start to, I suppose, if, if you become aware of your own oppression and and how you've been brutalized, then you have to think. And it's a very simple thing. And probably my, my parents probably told me growing up, like, you know, um, I mean, to treat others the way you want to be treated yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. And it is a very simple philosophy. Mm-hmm. And my father would have said, no, if you can't do someone a good turn, never do them a bad way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you internalize that, it's about saying, well, you know, people depending on, you know, their birth, their parents, their community, yeah. their, their situation, then and that's the things that decide in a particular way but, but they're ordinary people like yourself so it was I suppose that would have been a big sort of lesson at that time um, of being common 
conscious of how you uh, engage with other people. Even, and I think it's to our credit after the whole protests that we had a particular approach in the jail and we ended up writing a, I wrote a charter for our, our wings, oh, wow. which was for the prisoners that, you know, everyone um, are entitled to be there. And the, like it's never physical brutality or sexual assault or anything at all. But also in terms of the prison guards that they come under the wing, um, we don't respect their badge or the uniform that they wear, but as people will respect them and the right to come on the wing and they want a cup of tea, coffee, how you want to read a book, uh-huh. go and read a book, you want to go to the yard, do whatever you want on the wing, you won't be touched at all on it until you start to try to harass or oppress us. And if you do, we will use anything, anything bar nothing yeah. to stop you. And most of them, that's fine with me. So it's recognized that there's a human there, but yeah, there's yeah. the, I mean, I ended up with me prison guards prefer to work on our wings rather than loyalist wings. So it was then, I suppose, then oh, that's interesting. getting yeah. out of jail and, and yeah, continuing that work continue to develop also and, and see that, um, yeah, you can't, you can't be driven by hate. I mean, and thankfully, that probably was a time, well, there was a time, not probably, during the, the protest <laughs> where probably I hated in a way I'd never, never hated in my life before. Yeah. To agree with it. And then you realise that's, that's not a fact that anybody else other than myself, you know, uh-huh. that's just, and ours I think was a pettiness and it's a thing that, which would still rage up today when I see it, of pettiness and particularly of bureaucracies yes. and that thing of power. Yes. Um, and I've been to Europe one time, got into America and I need a special visa to get into America and you, know, you go through the whole process and I got it and uh, stomp the State Department and everything else. Then I arrived in Washington, ironically to speak on feminism at a yeah. International Studies Association. Yeah. Gets pulled into the airport uh, and the guy sort of almost outraged, what's this, an Irish terrorist here to speak on feminism. I'm just taking off this room where this elderly Sri Lankan guy, an Indian guy, are brought in and the real aggression of the guards. Yes. And it's in, and, and the, the ones who I happen to be seeing, uh, red or black or Hispanic, and male and female. And it was all, with these other guys, uh, you know, but do you speak English, you know, and really over them and, and, and my attitude was, I'm here legally, you want to put me back on a plane to Ireland, no big deal, I'm, I'm going back home again, you know, yeah. uh, I'm here at an invite, and then how it changes, <clears throat> and it's good to be back in that situation where you realise the power again yeah. of, of there, and then uh, some, obviously someone sat down and went, okay, why, why are we holding this guy in the because he has a, has a passport, he's, he's English, he's white, he's, he's got permission, and then it changes to uh, Dr. McEwen, um, uh. is there anybody in the that knew we could contact? And then and that became Lawrence and Zeth at the bottom. And I'm more or less trying to keep them at a distance. I'm with these guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not part of your... You're like, I'm over here with this dude. Yeah. And bring my bag and show me the bag that's okay. And there's almost no fear in their part that they have messed up. And now is this white doctor Well, we marginalized the wrong person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know? and, and you're thinking, they, and once they go off duty in the streets of Washington... Yeah. by our communities are going to be seen as piece of shit right. or whatever yeah. you know right. because they're working class people they're they're black hispanic whatever else um yeah. i'm becoming breath just the idea of regardless of the situation that idea of, of power fascinating how some people try to cling on to this or grab at this sort of yeah lose a thing of power and probably i can understand what happens in, in, in their lives so suddenly they're in a position where they have a wee bit of power we've seen yeah. it in the jail with prison guard who on the outside were nothing but they're, now they're in jail mm-hmm. they have the keys 
there's a point whenever they're in charge and then that point goes and then suddenly it's like oh god how did how did that happen yeah so i suppose all of those things mm-hmm. have helped me over the years to say that you know you shouldn't be in better you should yeah. be proud of what you come through and the goal must be a better society it's not and there's people who today will totally oppose you and if tomorrow they come around till seeing things differently then then you be friends with them you don't go well oh, i remember 20 years ago yeah. you did this for 30 like we've all just made mistakes with all of these that different levels of consciousness at one stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I do think that quote of Guevara's is, well, the whole number is a great, you know, like, let's be realistic and attempt the impossible. Exactly. Which I think is great. Let's be realistic and attempt the impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then great. also like, uh, um, Emma Goldman, is that, I used to use that in my emails all the time about, uh, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Bobby's quote was, let our revenge be the laughter of our children. And yes. I thought again, for someone in those conditions to be able to think outside of the box exactly. and there's not hatred there's no anger there's no nothing else it's like it's envisaging a better society yeah yes. and you can't say well it's a better society for us but it's not going to be the unionists or it's not going to be the new immigrants exactly. or it's not going to be the gays or it's not going yeah. to be no you can't no, <laughs> no it's a new society there's no ifs buts sub clauses or mm-hmm. anything else you know yeah. i think it's what our goal to be and i think that well it's like this it's like you've been here or I've been in other countries and um, yeah. across Europe, Eastern Europe, then in South Africa, and you meet people and you're just on the same wavelength because yeah. you don't even have to go on a big explanation yeah. once you say, oh, I know I've spoken at length. But, um, you know, people who have been through those troubles just get it. Yeah. yeah. You know, they can end your sentences for you, and you can end their sentences for them. Yeah. It's depression is the same, the word over, discrimination is the same. <clears throat> manifest maybe in different ways but but we know what it is you know yeah. and it's about how in solidarity I think it was one of the big lessons that we learned in 81 of the Republican movement learned that they suddenly became aware that you know other parts of the world were looking on them yes you know? Mandela and, them and Robin Island going on a you know, yeah. solidarity hunger strike for, yeah. because us Palestinians didn't see them and you suddenly go well yeah you know people are the same as now we look to to, to, yes. to others as well and uh and it's what needed because imperialism and capitalism is united and it's yes. it's war to, to to keep us all suppressed so we yeah. must we must be united and um, yes. yeah. thank you for listening to this podcast thank you to Lawrence and will and thank you so much to the entire team at Aisht for bringing us to Belfast and Derry and South Armagh and um, all over Northern Ireland. We really, really appreciated it. We cannot wait to get back. We've got links about Lawrence and the conflict at our site, intotheworldshow.org. While you're there, you can find a link to support us financially via Patreon if you feel compelled. How to Survive the End of the World is produced by the delightful daddy, Zach Rosen. The music is from Tunde Alanaran and Mother Cyborg. And we'll see you next time.